It's Halloween season here at Centerpoint Church, and we have a great series called Saints and Serpents. In this series, we will take a look at various stories in the Bible involving snakes. I hate snakes, but let's see how God uses it. Let's get started. So we're going to unpack a few things in a second, um, but before we do that, my friends, and I say friends because we've spent a lot of time together over the past few weeks, and they are literal gems and salt of the earth, and I'm praying that you are able to receive um, God's goodness and faithfulness through their testimonies today, but real quick, Dan and Teresa, just give us like a 15-second who you are introduction. Well, I'm Daniel Johnson, I'm 47 years old, uh, born and raised in Toledo, Ohio, <clears throat> lived in Tennessee for the last 11 years. Um, uh, I've been coming to CP here for now the last two years. Most of you probably know my uh, beautiful wife, Carrie, and then we have two kids, uh, a boy who's 25 and a daughter who's 11. Good morning. My name is Teresa Young. I am the Director of Academic Technology and Training at Meharry Medical College. I have one daughter. I'm the youngest of seven, and I come from a little small town in Kentucky called Providence. 4,000 people, that's what the sign says. I don't think that's true. But I was uh, living in Mansker Farms right down the street, and I kept driving by. I needed a, a new church home, and, um, and I just stopped in, and I've been here a year and a half. Awesome. Amen. Okay, so we kind of joked because Pastor Jason put three introverts on stage. So we're not, gonna, we're not sure what you're going to get today. But we are going to dive into the question that he has tasked us with. And I'm gonna put the, we're going to have the question on the screen. Tell us about the time the enemy tried taking you out, but God got the glory. And before Mr. Dan speaks for us, we are going to go ahead and pray. So if you'll bow your heads with us. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your presence, Lord. You've already been here this morning, God, and I can just feel it permeating this room, Lord. And I just pray for our hearts and our minds, God, that we can receive, um, even if there's just one person today that needs to hear you, to hear you speak through the lives of Dan and Teresa. God, I pray that you give us ears to hear, that you give us softened hearts to receive whatever message you have for us today. Um, and I rebuke fear, and I pray strength and courage and clarity and discernment over my friends today. And we love you, and we thank you. Amen. So, Dan, we're going to start with you. Tell us about a time the enemy tried taking you out, but God got the glory. Okay. So, I met Jesus on the day I had planned to take my life. I have a bipolar disorder, and I have a real hard bend toward the depressive side of the disorder. Uh, and um, I've been through, I don't know, hours, countless hours of, of time on psychiatrist couches. I've been through <laughs> piles and piles of different medications. And uh, I've even spent some time in a, uh, a, a psychology ward in a, in a hospital. And uh, none of it seemed to help. Uh, progressively over the, over the time, it just got worse and worse and worse. Um, I was diagnosed in my early 20s, so I was about 10 years in at this point when I came to this conclusion. And it was just after 10 years of this, of fighting this, um, you know, you just, you become so exhausted because you're, you're running out of hope. And everywhere I looked at every aspect in, in my life, you know, I, I was failing. I was failing at my job. I couldn't hardly stay awake because of all the medication. Uh, I was failing as a husband. Uh, I, I, I failed as a son. There's, there's, there's no telling what kind of grief I, I put my parents through. But most importantly, I was failing as a father. 
there were certain even just basic needs that this little young man needed at 10 years old that I, I just couldn't fulfill. And everywhere I looked, it was just failure, failure, failure. And it brings you to the ultimate conclusion that all these people that you love would be better off if you weren't there. And so in April of 2008, I'd made a plan. And that was to end my life. My, uh, my now ex-wife, wife at the time, she'd had a family reunion, a weekend family reunion planned in West Virginia. It was about six hours from, from where we lived. And uh, I had made up an excuse that uh, we were going to have to drive down separate. And um, it was all a lie. I, I just wanted the time alone in the house to complete what I needed to get done. And something, you know, like a couple days before or the day before or whatever, something compelled me to go. And I couldn't really figure all that out at that moment, but I justified it by saying, no, I'm just going to take one last motorcycle ride. I'm just going to get on my bike. I'm going to enjoy one last motorcycle ride down there by myself. And when I get there, it'll be just one more moment that I have that I can say goodbye to my family. And so I went. Wow. So obviously you're still here, praise God. So can you continue on, like what happened that weekend? Like what shifted for you? So Saturday night, I find myself um, in, at the dining table of my uh, uh, ex-wife's grandfather. His name's Chuck. Now this, one thing you have to know about Chuck is, <clears throat> Chuck is a retired preacher, missionary, like this guy has spent his entire life in service of God. And like God has so permeated his, his existence that I'm, when this dude sweats, he smells like God, right? Because I mean, everything about him just, just, it just pours out of him. And you're not going to have a conversation with Chuck for more than five minutes and you're going to hear about God. And I want, I want to tell you where I'm at though at this moment. Sitting at his dining room table, I'm, I'm 20 hours away from taking my life. And all of that is welling up inside me, all this darkness and all this, this angst. And I just so desperately want to scream to somebody, help me. But I know that won't work because I had tried it in the past. I've been battling this for 10 years. And it wasn't going to work. All it was going to do was kick the can down the road is what it did this time or the last time. And so barely being able to keep this into myself, the conversation turns to God and Chuck starts talking about God's love and he starts talking about his mercy and, and his forgiveness and his joy and all of these things. And he lands on the word peace and I don't have peace. I don't even know what it is. I've been in turmoil for 10 years. And when he landed on peace, it just triggered me and I slammed my fist into his table. And with raised voice, I just said, Chuck, if your God is so great, if he's so loving and caring and does everything for you, why won't he reveal himself to me? Why? What is wrong with me? At that moment, like, like <laughs> this is kind of disrespectful, I think, in my book, but, you know, but it just it came out of me. And I expected Chuck to kind of stand up at that moment <laughs> and take me outside and teach me a lesson. Like, I expected him to kick me out of his house for being disrespectful, pounding on his table and whatnot, but not Chuck. Chuck looked at me with just, like, forgiveness in his eyes, 
He looked at me with this calmness and this, and this peace that I didn't know anything about. And he just said, Daniel, and he said, God is everywhere. He said, the fact that you can't find him is because you're not looking for him. And I said, whatever, Chuck. And I left. That would mean something to me later. <laughs> the next morning, Chuck's son um, was a uh, pastor currently in, in uh, a church in West Virginia. And we were all going there the next morning, the day of my plan. And I'm sitting there in this church, and Chuck's son is up there preaching, and he's preaching a sermon, and it, it is just, it's just tearing me apart inside. Like, I, it, it's, it's just destroying me, and I can't quite figure out why. Like, I don't know this guy that well. I mean, we know each other, but I, we don't know each We probably spoke five times over the last 10 years. Like, we don't have that type of history. He doesn't know me well enough to even tailor a message that would affect me the way this one was, and I couldn't figure it out. And I know that right now, you know, all sitting in your chairs and stuff, it's easy to hear the story and go like, well, that was the spirit working on you. Well, Daniel sitting in that pew that morning did not know that. And so it just, it, 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 it just didn't make sense to me. And I was like, none, none, the, what happened the night before with Chuck and how he answered me, and what was going on in this church pew right at this moment with tears just streaming I'm trying to hide all this none of this makes sense and that's where I was thank you for sharing that I've, I've told you before Dan your story reminds me of Paul in the Bible as he is converted on the road and so up until this point in your story you've not had that encounter with God yet meanwhile Teresa you've been raised as a believer so what does that look like for a time that the enemy tried taking you out as, as someone that's known and been grown up in the faith all of your life. Exactly. Um, I think that the, the enemy or the, the devil works differently on people that have known God all their life. So I grew up in church. My mom was very serious about the Lord and she made sure our house was full. We were spiritual. We had Bible drills. We knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. We went to service three or four times a week. I sang in the choir. I ushered even in college. I sang in the choir. I ushered when I come home from college for the weekend. I'd go with my mom to the nursing home to sing hymns. And so uh, now my dad was alcoholic. My dad was alcoholic uh, all his life until the last three years of his life. But when he wasn't drunk, he would sing in the choir. He would drive the church bus. So, my, but my mom, she ruled the home. And so we all grew up godly. I knew the Lord. But what the devil has done to me two distinct times, he'll, he'll, he'll get me frustrated enough to move me out of service. And then I, I sit at home alone where the devil can really get to you when you're by yourself. But, but he'll get me so frustrated. The first time I know after my divorce, I was married 15 years we got divorced, and he was a what you call a church man. So I was mad at church people. I was like, "This is the church," you know. So, and then people were treating me a little funny at the church we'd been at 15 years, but we'd been a couple. So now they don't really know what to do with you. You're divorced. Well, are you going to be around my husband? You know, it was just a different feel. So I was kind of mad at the church. So a guy at work that wasn't a church man or godly man started pursuing me and I started a relationship that wasn't godly but because I knew it wasn't now I'm ashamed and embarrassed my family's going crazy like Teresa so so now I'm, I'm, I set myself aside I'm not gonna 
be in church. I'm not going to serve in church. I didn't even go to church a lot. My mom would call me every Sunday. You go to church? And always the answer was yes, but sometimes I would say, oh, yeah, but I didn't. I would watch it on you know, TV. But the devil moves me out because he gets me frustrated and they move me out of service. Same thing happened um, when in 2020, right at the beginning of COVID, my middle sister, who was the diva of the family, um, they called and said she was in the hospital. We need to rush to Kentucky you know, to, if we want to see her alive. So we get to the hospital. They call it end of life. So it was COVID. They weren't letting people in, but they let us in two at a time to just visit with her. She'd already coded twice before we got there. It's about two, my hometown's about two and a half hours away. Um, and we just had moments with her before she passed. Well, two weeks after that, they diagnosed my mom with colon cancer. And we were like, wait a minute. So they said, don't worry about it. You know, that's a, a common surgery. She had surgery three weeks later when I took her back for her um, three-week checkup. They said, oops, sorry, it's in the liver. It's stage four, you got six months. And we were like, we just lost our sister. We're gonna lose our mom. And the fifth month, my mom got to where she had to go to hospice. My brother got COVID and died in three days. And then my mom died like three, three weeks later. We were in a dark season, and then six months later, I get diagnosed with breast cancer. I was right in the middle of getting my master's degree, and I had breast cancer. And, and when I felt the lump on Mother's Day, we went to my mom's house because me and my sister wanted to feel close to her because that was our first Mother's Day. My mom died December 2020, and so we went to her house for Mother's Day 21 because we wanted to feel close to her, and that's when I, felt like a bee stung me and grabbed and noticed there was a lump. Well, my sister's director of radiology. I was like, can you feel this and see what's going on? And she was like, you need to go to the doctor. So I thought, I'm not. The Lord is not going to let me have cancer. I've worked for him all my life, except that one little period where I was, you know. But I, I've, I've worked, <laughs> I worked for him all my life. He is not going to let, and we had three deaths back to back in a seven month period. He is not going to let me have cancer. And it did. So I hope y'all are catching this because I think the way you framed this, Teresa, is super profound. When we're talking about Dan's story and we're talking about a time that the enemy tried taking him out, it was quite literally because he didn't know God uh, versus Teresa, you said to take you out of service. So as a believer, the enemy has no hold on our salvation, right? So he, he can do nothing about that. So he's going to spend the rest of his time distracting us um, and rendering us ineffective for service and ineffective for ministry. Right. Using your situations to make you feel like something is wrong with you. Like, how did... The, I was embarrassed to tell people at work. After, after my sister died and then my brother died, I was embarrassed to tell people that my mom died because it was like, is your family cursed? You know, so that, that was the, the trick to say, you're not really God's person because if you were, he wouldn't let all this stuff happen to you. Mm. Yeah. You told us about different seasons coming out of the divorce. You just didn't want to be around church people anymore, right? Because that's not talked about in the church. And then we kind of breeze through your season of loss, but that's a lot of loss in the period of how many, how many in years? In a short time, three. Two, a sister, a brother, and a mom in a seven-month period. And none of them were sick. I mean, all of it was a shock. So we're like, yeah, yeah, what is going on? And then six months later, 
you know, I'm diagnosed with cancer, so what I've learned is that bad things do happen to Christians. I almost didn't really believe that we get the same magnitude of bad as the world. We get the same magnitude of bad, and then we have to decide, what, do we believe what we've been saying we believe this whole time? So do I stay at home and, and be sad and, and cry about, God, let me have cancer, now I got all these uh, you know, ailments, or do you serve like you're supposed to? And you told me you, you've clung through hope through those times. By that point of your season of loss, you were a believer and you knew where your hope was at. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your mom. My, my mom, the six months that she had cancer, she served such a, she, she gave me such a good example, but she was always godly, you know. Um, but she, the whole time she was in hospice, she was, you know, at home where she started losing her ability to speak. Well, my mom sang hymns and never, I never heard her mad. I never heard her question God. I never, and we were there every, because I was working from home. My older sister was too. So the five of us that were left, we were just taking two weeks at a time. We stayed with her full time. But she was such a peaceful believer, even when she was having to take morphine. And she was, she, when she stopped talking, I was sitting at her bedside because me and her always shared the, the, the hymns and, and the church and the song. That was our thing together. And so uh, I would sit at her bedside. She couldn't speak. But I'd start up a hymn. She would start singing with a weak voice. She would sing every verse. Because in our Baptist church, you, you sing every verse. Okay? <laughs> so I know every verse of every hymn now. But, but, but she would sing. She couldn't talk, but she would sing hymns. When I would start a hymn, she would sing. That's incredible. So take us to, you've gone through the loss, you've gone through chemo, which means you are physically and emotionally exhausted. Tell us about the lies the enemy tried working on you then to keep you out of church, to keep you out of community, out of service at mm -hmm. that point. Especially because I was engaged in, and I was engaged to a man that was the minister of music at his church. He'd been there year, 25 years, so I felt like that was his church. So now... I don't have a church. No, I, I felt like I had no church. So the enemy would remind me, all oh, this loss, don't you feel ashamed? You don't even want to see people because they're going to be like, oh, poor Teresa, you lost, you know, and then you got cancer. So it was, it was the trick to stay. So when there was a time, almost a year, where I was too weak or my immune system was too, too sensitive to be in service. But when the time came when I started healing, it was, it was, I had to fight through those, those things I was hearing to get in service because it's like, you can't even walk. You might fall. You, you know, you, the neuropathy is going to make you where you can't sing. You can't sing. Your throat won't even hold a note. It wouldn't even hold a note for a year. I'm like, I can't even sing in the shower. So that just, that was the tricks he kept playing over and over to me. Like, you might as well stay at home because you're, what can you do? Yeah, you told me you felt like damaged goods, is what you said. Hmm. Like, what can you do? But he was a liar. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. Uh, Dan, we're going to transition back to your story, if you can. Take us back to that weekend. So you left um, your family's house. You sat through a service. What was that message about? Because I feel like that message had to be super impactful for the rest of um, the way your story ended yeah, that weekend. So the message I heard that day um, it affected me so deeply was titled a God-shaped hole in your heart 
And it was essentially just that God has designed in each and every single one of us this hole and that only he fits in. Now, we try to jam everything we can in this to feel satisfied and fulfilled with bank accounts and houses and material possessions and all of these things. And we, we just jam it all in there, status symbols and, and all of that stuff. We jam it all in here to find that fulfillment and satisfaction. But the only real fulfillment and satisfaction that can come from, it can only come from God because he's the only one that can fit in that spot of our heart. Tracy, you said you could relate to that too, right? I, I totally agree because the time that I called myself, you know, getting a man that wasn't in church and I was going to live a different type of lifestyle, there was no peace. There was no peace. It was like, like you said, like a hole was in your heart, like something is missing. It's God. Yeah. And the reason why we're telling this today is we have an enemy and he is aware, like he is out of time. We can look at what's going on overseas right now. The enemy is out of time and he's aware of it and it, the word says in Revelation that um, he's overcome by the blood of Jesus and the power of our testimonies. And so that's why this is important to tell our story of how, how God has worked in and through us. And Dan, um, lead us back through when you're, when you're headed home, you had a plan. You told me you're a man with a plan. So what changed? So church service is over and uh, I say goodbye to everyone. Um, one of the things that still haunts me to this day is, is I hugged my 10-year-old son, which for what I thought was gonna be the last time. But it's time to get on with it because this has to be done. There is no other choice. There's no, there's no hope. It's, it's all gone. Everything's, there's nothing left. This has to be done to save everybody else. <laughs> um, so I get on my bike and I head home. And on my way home, the thoughts keep reoccurring over and over. On one side, I have, like, how did Chuck respond to me with such calmness and with such peace? How did that happen when I was so disrespectful in this house? Then how did this church service, how did this sermon affect me so deeply when I really wasn't even supposed to be there? And, like, like how, I don't even believe in this stuff anyway, so how, how did all this happen? And then on this side of the coin, the heaviness and the, and the turmoil and the darkness of what I'm about to do. I'm six hours from, from my end. And the heaviness of that. And there is this war going back and forth in my mind as I'm, as I'm going down the highway. And it became so intense that at some point I just said, I'm not even going to wait till I get home. I'm going to wait for the next oncoming truck and I'm just going to ride my motorcycle right in front of it. I'm done. That's when I'd heard from Jesus. I didn't hear something audible or anything like that, but what I felt, the best way I can describe this is like, I, I felt this word and I felt pray. That's just what I felt. I just felt it in my bones, pray. Now you gotta remember, I don't believe in any of this. So this word didn't come from me. It didn't come from this inner monologue I have in my, in my brain. It didn't come from any of that stuff. I hadn't really been around it, but pray. And I did. And for the first time, this real prayer, really what I call is just nothing more than a sigh of submission. It was this moment of just, okay, God, I need help. And just an absolute plea for help because I don't want to do what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm headed home to do, but I don't see any other way to do this. By the time I got home, uh, I made it into the uh, garage. I never made it past the garage where I had planned on doing this was in my basement. 
And uh, I sat there on these couple stairs that were leading up into the house. And I sat there for the next probably two hours just contemplating. I had never lifted a finger for God. But yet something fundamentally was different inside of me. I can now explain why Chuck answered me with that calmness and that peace. I can now explain how that church sermon affected me. I didn't know what you'd call it. I didn't have language for it, but I understood that it didn't come from me. And if it didn't come from me, then it had to have come from God. There was no other way because there wasn't another soul on the planet that knew I was going to do this. Because none of this story, none of this story makes any sense without God. I, like you said, it can't be explained why that message was was tailored for you other than God. But what made me really curious when talking to you, because I want to learn something. Like when we are listening to these stories, we got, we got to learn something about how we can reach others who don't have hope yet. And what I was really uh, struck by was you, you being so taken back by the conversation in the kitchen and how um, your, did you say uncle? Is that right? His, her uncle? So Chuck, the way that he responded to you when you were so angry. And so I'm from the South. I'm not planning on kicking anyone out of my house, even if they disagree with me. That's just not how we treat people. So to me, I just really couldn't process and wrap my head around why you felt like that was so um, different or peculiar to you. Uh, could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so um, at that moment, you know, whenever you're speaking to someone who doesn't know Jesus, right? you're speaking to that non-believer, the unchurched person, whatever, you have to remember something that they don't know God's love. They don't know his forgiveness. They don't know his grace, peace, mercy. They know none of it, right? And you could have quoted at that time, you could have quoted the entire Bible to me and it wouldn't have made any difference because I didn't believe it anyway. But what did make the difference is the way Chuck responded. I expected him to react a certain way because that's what I knew and that's what I thought he was going to do. But he didn't respond that way. And that's what made the difference. He showed me God's love and his forgiveness and, 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 and grace and mercy in that moment. And that's what led me to Christ. I think that's something, church, we can walk away with today is that is why we that is why and that is how we are set apart, because we have a world that's looking to us expecting, not expecting the fruits of the spirit, not expecting gentleness, kindness, peace. Um, so much so that it, it took you back and then impacted your life. Tell the audience, tell us all in those seasons, because I'm sure this um, mental health battle is not over. So tell us how um, or what you clung to in the last several years when um, you needed additional hope, right? So first and foremost, I have spent a lot of time looking and the only hope that we have is in Christ Jesus. End of story, game over. There's nothing, there's nothing else. Um, and on that day that, that I met Jesus, like he healed me from the suicidal nature. Like I don't have that anymore. But what he did not do was heal me from the depression. I still suffer with it. It still affects me. Um, I still don't like it. <laughs> but it reminds me of 2 Corinthians uh, where Paul um, had a thorn in his flesh. And we don't know what that thorn in his flesh was, but I mean, we're talking about Paul. Here's a guy who was flogged and beaten and, and left for dead 
and, and imprisoned and all of these things. So whatever, whatever thorn in his flesh, whatever it was, was, was heavy, was something bad. And he didn't just ask God to remove that. He pleaded with him for three times in the same way that I have pleaded with God. Please take this depression when I am in the midst of it. And my answer from God is the same answer he gave Paul all those years ago. My grace is sufficient for you. It reminds me, it, it, it's also taught me this, that if God were to take that away from me, that depression, it's made me view it a little bit differently, in a little bit different light. I still hate it. <laughs> but it's made me view it in a way that where I look at it as a reminder. It is, it, it is a reminder that tells me that it, it is his air that's in my lungs. It is he who sustains me, right? If he took all that away from me, I would forget that I cannot navigate this life without him. It makes me also realize that God is less concerned about how comfortable I am and all the way concerned about how close I am. And that's exactly it. And the, the one thing he does, though, also is, is he provides a, a way out of it. It's when I focus completely on him, and when I allow him to fill that God-shaped hole, when I shovel all the garbage out of that God-shaped hole, and he fills that and occupies that space, I become blissfully unaware of all my afflictions. Yeah. Like you said, we all have a God-shaped hole in our heart, and there is an enemy trying to take us out. Um, but we have a Jesus that pursues us. You are pursued by him. And Teresa, your story is so much different, but you can look back and see all the breadcrumbs of his faithfulness and his goodness. Absolutely. What is what is something, a verse, a song, something that gives you hope? So I, I will say this, that believers, the trouble is coming because you live in this life. Even the scripture says in this life you will have trouble. So that's something that I didn't really grab a hold on to until after the cancer. You're going to have trouble. Decide how you're going to go through it and then allow him to show you the lessons in the trouble. In the middle of the, the cancer, I never knew people loved me like they do. I never knew I was loved like that. I never felt so many people, coworkers, cousins, coming out of the woodwork, people that I maybe just spoke to, coming to see about me, bringing me things, sending me money. I mean, I, I, never, I never experienced that love like that. But that was a lesson in the, in the heart. That was right in the middle of the trouble. So in the middle of whatever you're going through, there can be beautiful blessings. I'm stronger than I was before. Nah, I, I was a crybaby. You could hurt my feelings in one second, and you hurt my feelings, and then I'm gone. You know, that, that was kind of my personality. I, I don't like trouble. But I'm stronger now. My mom set an example for me. I have to set an example for my daughter. How to go, how do you go through trouble as a Christian? So there, there's some there's some good things. I clung to to my family because they were there for me like crazy. I clung to the fact the faith that I already had in God. Now I got to believe it. Now I got to put it into action. And then there was a musical. So there was songs. One day at a time, sweet Jesus. That's all I'm asking, because when I was going through the chemo, physically, it was so rough. One treatment, I lost all hair. I'm talking eyebrows and all. One treatment. 
and I, I was devastated. Um, but one day at a time, sweet Jesus, I play my music. What I do now that I didn't do before, I fill my house with godly stuff. I, I, I looked at, you know, preachers. I, I, I worship, but not like I do now. I make it a point to put on the, 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 the pastors on the TV in the house instead of the housewives. You know, I, I, I'm deliberate about, you know, reading my, reading my Bible, looking at the, having the Bible um, daily verse come to me and, and going through that every day. I'm more deliberate after the tragedies. So beauty comes in the tragedy. Y'all give it up for Dan and Teresa. It takes a lot of courage to get up here. Yeah. Go ahead and stand with us. We're going to go ahead and stand. And Miss Teresa, you mentioned just as I am. And I was just wondering, can you please sing this, sing us out I on will, that? I will say that um, when I was a kid, the, 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 the memory that stands out to me about God is that my mom used to take me to the Billy Graham Crusades. He'd come uh, to our little hometown and, and we'd get on a bus and go to the crusade. And every time he opened the doors of the church, he, he, he sang just as I, they sang just as I am. So what I'm telling you today is that God is always there. It's us that's got to come to him. It, it's us. He's waiting for us to make the move. It's on you. It's on you. So the verse that I like says, just as I am and waiting not, because I, I want to rid my soul of one dark blot. So I'm coming to thee, the thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. Only he can do it. So if you need to make a move, move toward him. Just as I am and waiting not because I want to rid my soul of one dark light so I'm coming to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot oh lamb of God Isn't that beautiful?